0: Conflicts and COVID-19, US election interference, and Australia's cybersecurity strategy. Welcome to Policy Guns and Money, the Aspie Podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss
1: foreign interference in US elections. So the intelligence agencies in the US have definitively come out on a number of occasions saying, yes. And the challenges of policing cybercrime.
2: You know, I am in a think tank, with, you know, it's good to identify the good things, but really, you know, we, we earn our bread and butter by identifying the problems, you know.
0: But first, Lisa Sharland speaks to Rob Malley, President and CEO of International Crisis Group, about conflicts during COVID-19 and prospects for peace in Afghanistan. Rob, thanks for joining us on the
3: podcast today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to kick off um, our conversation today talking a little bit about, um, Some of the things that are happening globally when it comes to conflict, which is certainly in the remit of of the work that you're doing at International Crisis Group at the moment. And I thought a useful starting point might be looking at some of the calls that we've had globally with the developments that we've seen with COVID 19. We had a call from the UN Secretary General in March, for instance, that there be a global ceasefire. We've recently just had the UN Security Council. Finally, after months and months of of, um, sort of negotiations over this, adopting a resolution, calling for this as well. But how realistic is that actual call in terms of what we're seeing playing out on the ground at the moment? Have we seen any traction in some of the conflicts around the globe when it comes to ceasefires at present?
4: You know, calls like that are often a little bit um, Pollyannish, or you know, they're a bit abstract and and overly optimistic. But that was the point. I mean, what the Secretary General was doing is not assuming that by making this call, people would suddenly realize that they'd better stop shooting. But he wanted to put his moral voice and hopefully the voice of the Security Council on the side of of, uh, of a ceasefire, and maybe then get countries that were backing the belligerents to pressure them to stop. Now. In the first days and weeks, there were actually some positive responses, at least rhetorically, about a dozen. And, you know, we at Christ Group were surprised to even hear that much. But, I mean, several things happened. Some of those answers were purely rhetorical and never were meant to be more than that. In other cases, there was a little bit of traction and then it quickly collapsed because the roots of the conflict had not been addressed. And then third, and you know, for us in a way most dispiriting is that the Security Council couldn't get its act together for many months, showing that they really had no interest in using, uh, or at least taking advantage to some extent of COVID-19 to press the humanitarian point that you don't want to add the, uh, the, the, the a war to what was already the ravages caused by the pandemic. Um, but that didn't happen because of divisions within the Security Council. And so rather than seeing outside countries pressing conflict actors to stop fighting, They didn't do that, and in some cases, they continued helping them in their local struggles. So that was uh, not the best outcome, but not one that is particularly surprising. I'd end with this. The Security Council is a mirror of the state of the world. It more often than not reflects where the world is, then brings it to where it ought to be. And in this case, what it reflected was the impotence and the divisions among world powers.
3: And, and I think, you know, in, in terms of an assessment there, what we're seeing take place geopolitically at the moment amongst some of those major powers goes, goes sort of beyond some of those discussions in the council, no doubt, which we'll get into a, a little bit more. One of the the conflicts, of course, that's sort of um, been ongoing um, over the last few decades is what we've seen playing out in Afghanistan and At the moment, we're sort of waiting to see what happens with potential peace talks um, between the the Afghani government and and the Taliban at the moment. Uh, We have discussions at the moment over the release of prisoners, which is, I guess, is one of the, the issues that is, is being looked at before talks proceed further. I should note here in Australia, that's been an issue of concern given that some of the particularly one prisoner that's being looked at being released was um, responsible for the death of Defence Force personnel here. And I know similarly other countries have expressed concern about deaths of their nationals and potential release of those those prisoners. So with all that sort of context at the moment, what, what are sort of your assessments of where discussions are going at the moment in, in terms of developments in Afghanistan? And what do you see sort of as the trajectory over the next few months?
4: So I'd start by saying, and I don't, I'm not known to shower the Trump administration with praise, but this is one case where I would say they handled the situation quite well, which is that they pressed hard for a diplomatic uh, solution. And they were prepared to have high-level discussions with the Taliban, even in the absence of the Afghan government, which had been a sticking point in the past. And they at least got to the point where there's an agreement between the Taliban and the U.S., and part of that agreement is to see the the onset of intra-Afghan talks. Now there were some preconditions, or as the Taliban saw them, they wanted to see the release of 5,000 of, uh, of, of their prisoners. Um, it is controversial. Prisoner releases, by definition, are controversial because they are supposed to mark the not really for, not to forget or to forgive, but to say we're prepared to pay the price of allowing people who have caused harm, often not always, but often at least those who are rightfully being detained are detained because of some of the the, the crimes or the, the warlike uh, activities in which they were engaged. So it's always difficult, and I understand it's particularly difficult in, in, in a particular case for Australia as it is for other countries. But if the if the reward on the other side is an actual peace countries often swallow hard and say, this is what we need to do. And so I'd say, you know, the, the, the process has been slow. Talks were supposed to begin in March, if I'm, if I'm correct, they haven't yet begun. But there's been progress. There's been many ceasefires, many ceasefires to, to coincide with religious holidays. We are almost at the stage where all prisoners will have been released. And then the talks, which will be even more difficult than what preceded them, are to take place. Given how long this war has gone on since 2001, it's the longest war in, in, in U.S. history that the U.S. has been engaged in, and by some, some number of years, um, it is at least worth looking at this as glass half full. We're on the verge of talks. The U.S. is committed to a robust diplomatic initiative. It has reached some agreement with the Taliban. Now we've got to push this past the, the finish line, which will be far more difficult than getting to where we are now. But I think it's one place where the Trump administration deserves uh, some praise and the parties now deserve encouragement to, to keep going.
3: One of the other issues of concern that's come out of these discussions relates to how that agreement may potentially reflect on women's rights in the country. And um, we've seen this week um, an attack on one of the women peace negotiators who has been taking part um, or is potentially taking part in that and concerns that this is something that perhaps may become a point of compromise, um, if if not sort of a a long-term cause of concern. What's your sort of assessment uh, in terms of Whether or not this is likely to just simply be a bargaining chip and maybe let go as part of the process and just seen as something perhaps that isn't a priority in terms of that that grander um, peace deal.
4: It's a great question. We just issued a report last week looking at what the Taliban positions were on a whole host of issues from the form of government to religious freedom to women's rights to the structure of the security forces etc cetera, etc cetera. now on the issue of human rights and women's rights in particular that is cause for concern because we've seen how the Taliban governed in the past they've been relatively coy about what their position would be they tell they've told us and others that they have learned from the experience that they don't want to go back to the way it was in the 90s but you know we see we you know there's reason to worry nonetheless and uh, even though it may be one of the, as you say, a bargaining chip, our view is it's one area where countries on whom the Taliban and the Afghans in general are going to need to depend for economic assistance to get this country on its feet, even if assuming that you get a new government through this uh, intra-Afghan negotiation, the Taliban say that they acknowledge and certainly other Afghans acknowledge that they're going to need support, support from the West in particular. And that support could be made contingent on whatever government emerges, whatever agreement comes out, respecting basic human rights. That's the leverage that the rest of the world has, and it should not uh, let it go to waste.
3: So I guess what you're sort of saying there is the leverage extends well beyond the, the peace deal itself in terms of how countries decide to engage.
4: Well, it should, the message should go even during the negotiations that this is one of the criteria that is going to be used to judge whether this is an agreement that the rest of the world, and I mean, it's not up to them to accept it or reject it, whether they're going to be prepared to work with the government that comes out of uh, the negotiations, and yes, I think it's important to to emphasise rights of all citizens, and in particular the rights of women.
3: I wanted to turn uh, to the um, to some of the analysis that's come out of International Crisis Group, of course, which you which you head up at the moment. Uh, Every year Crisis Group puts out sort of a a prediction in in terms of all the conflicts that should be watched around the the globe, Um, sort of 10 conflicts to watch and that sort of your last one came out I think in December 2019. A lot has changed certainly since um, December. The world looks like quite a a significantly different place to what it did with um, COVID-19 with some of the geopolitical developments that we've seen taking place. And I wanted to get your assessment um, on how those conflicts or those areas to watch it have sort of trended. And in particular, I think a lot of people noted that, uh, and I think you recently noted this in a column that you wrote, um, that ICG broke with precedent in terms of identifying the United States as an, an area. Some of the developments that we saw taking place there in June as um, something that needs to be watched. So, how do you think those sort of the, the conflicts that were identified, and where do you think that's going in the in the next few months? Sort of what what do you think might feature on the list for for next year that perhaps we may not have foreseen twelve months ago? Well,
4: it's not too early to, to start thinking about that. You know, I, I looked back at the list in, in preparation for our conversation. And the fact is, and it's not one that we should take particular pride in, but all the conflicts that we mentioned, I think, maybe with one exception, uh, are conflicts that were either noteworthy because of how deadly they were or noteworthy because they presented an opportunity for resolution, as in the case of Afghanistan. I think the only quadru that we put in there, the conflict, which is the conflict or the potential conflict in the Korean Peninsula, that one has remained virtually static for the last year. But looking back, uh, I think what is particularly noteworthy are the areas that we did not think would be on the agenda. You mentioned the United States. We didn't think about that last December. I don't think we thought about it in January, but certainly where we are today, it's a country that uh, is, you know, let's not exaggerate. We're not on the verge of a civil war, of the kind of conflict we've seen elsewhere. But given the weight the U.S. plays, uh, has in the world, this is, and given how, disconcerting and depressing events have been. I think it's important to to take note of that. But of course, the big event that we couldn't foresee was the pandemic. Um, I think what I take from this is that next year, we're gonna have to think of some more about some of these transnational threats, a pandemic, inequality. I mean, we did, we hesitated about talking about these protest movements that had emerged last year in Algeria, in Sudan, um, in Iraq, in Lebanon. To which now we should add Belarus, Thailand. I mean, there's a feeling of citizens rising up against uh, corruption, against inequity. And that's one of those, one of those trends. And then climate change. I mean, crisis group has made its reputation by its very field based, region based, country based work, which I think is, is unparalleled. But we are, have to be aware of these other phenomena, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's climate change. Whether it's the fight against inequality and corruption or authoritarian, uh, uh, repressive governments that are now infecting, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, uh, conflicts around the world.
3: No, and I think some of the things certainly that you've touched on there, I guess, go to elements of human security that we're seeing affecting the lives of, of people across the globe, as you say, some of these transnational elements as well just before we wrap up, one of the issues that I think has been a cause of concern for for governments around the world at the moment, one of your colleagues, Michael Kovrig, um, has been detained, I think, at that the moment looking at your um, Twitter account, it says about 616 days uh, in China. Yep. And I wanted to talk about that because arbitrary detention um, by governments uh, of, of citizens abroad at the moment is, is a concern. I know, for instance, that um, the Australian government, you know, there's cause for concern about an Australian national government. Um, Kylie um, Gilbert Moore who's detained in Iran at the moment and this raises some issues aside from the very personal element the impact it has on the individual and the families involved which is um, significant but also around the debates about how to approach that uh, what level of private diplomacy should be engaged and how much needs to take place in public and I thought it's important to draw attention to this but also to get an assessment of sort of what tools are being drawn on by Crisis Group at the moment to, I guess, look at trying to get your colleague released right now?
4: Yeah, I'm glad you, you raised it because it's on, on our minds uh, every day, as you say. Over 600 days now that he has been in detention, he hasn't seen, he hasn't been outside, he hasn't seen a member of his family. Actually, since January, he hasn't. He's been denied consular access. They claim the Chinese authorities claim it's because of COVID-19, but even after covid the, the height of COVID-19, he still has not had consular access. I think uh, those who are listening to us must know, but I will have to remind them if they don't, that he was picked up, not because of anything he did, but because he's a Canadian citizen who happened to be in China at the wrong time, right as at the same time as, as, as Canada, or a week after Canada had detained a Chinese national, the CFO, Chief Financial Officer of Huawei, on extradition charges to the US. So this is a clear case of hostage diplomacy, there's no other word, there's no, he'd been going back and forth to China for years, and all of a sudden, a week after Canada arrests uh, a Chinese citizen, that he's detained. I don't think one has to be a a great expert in Chinese uh, politics to know why he was picked up. And you raised the, I mean, we've struggled with it. How do you react? I mean, on the one hand, you wanna scream and you wanna wage a public campaign, on the other hand, you know sometimes, I mean, I've spoken to experts who have to deal with this around the world, whether it's in Iran, as you mentioned, or Egypt or elsewhere, and you always have to balance between putting enough pressure, but you always are afraid and the family is afraid that if you go too far, are they going to retaliate? Our view has been we need to put pressure and governments, including the Australian government, have raised this with... Uh, uh, with China, um, certainly European governments, the U.S. government, Canada, first and foremost. But at the same time, we've been telling the Chinese that if they look at crisis group, if they look at what Michael has been doing, and, you know, our relationship with China go back to the time when Gareth Evans, your former foreign minister, was one of my predecessors and somebody who did a fantastic job for, for crisis group, a whole philosophy was, we want to engage, we don't believe in isolation, we don't believe in trying to exclude China. In fact, China has a perfectly legitimate right to play a pivotal role on the world scene. And that's been our and our interaction with China and Michael's interaction with China has been to try to give them advice on how to play a more a constructive role in conflict prevention and resolution. Uh, so for them to do this sends that message, a very chilling message, that if you want to work in China, about China, even if it's to be Engaging with China, you run the risk of one day becoming a pawn of great power diplomacy or great power hostage taking, and that's been extraordinarily, uh, 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 you know, difficult for his family, for all of his colleagues at Crisis Group. But we'll continue to fight. I'm convinced he'll be he'll be released uh, sometime soon, because there is, you know, China is only hurting itself by by its actions and the message it's sending to its neighbors like Australia to others who I know are, are preoccupied because if you're a business person, if you're a member of an academic institution, a research institution, even a diplomat, what guarantee do you have that you won't be the next victim if this if this is allowed to, to, to persist?
3: And I think, as you say there, for, for those that are looking to engage in, in diplomacy or research or business, this has long-reaching uh, implications for that. And if you're trying to look at what's happening on the ground and analyse what's taking place, then, then the implications um, extend much beyond that, not to mention the um, devastating personal consequences of it. So, uh, look, Rob, thanks so much for joining us today, um, giving us a, I mean, we could go into depth on so many different um, crises that are happening around the world at the moment, um, but uh, hopefully we'll have another opportunity to hear from you a bit um, later, either this year or next year, when we, we sort of try to look at what's happening for the year ahead. But
0: thank you again for your time today.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Next, the strategists Brendan Nicholson and Anastasia Kapetis discuss foreign interference in US elections in light of the recently released US Senate Intelligence Committee report on Russian interference in the 2016 election.
5: So Anastasia, the Senate Intelligence Committee has released its report examining the Mueller investigation. What are your impressions?
1: Well, the first thing that people are asking probably out there in the public is, what's this all about? Haven't we already had a Mueller inquiry? Haven't we already had a congressional committee inquiry that's handed down? Why is this coming out now? And the answer to that is that this process in the Senate has been running in parallel to those other processes uh, and its, its findings are just being wrapped up. So it's, 1,000 pages long, it's taken testimony from from journalists, from political operatives, from government officials, actually on both sides of the Atlantic. So that's one of the interesting things we'll get to, the way in which the Brexit election has been linked to foreign interference with the US election as well.
5: Well, reading these reports, two reports that have come out in parallel, are you any more convinced that there was actual Russian interference in the last US election and in the Brexit process?
1: So the intelligence agencies in the US have definitively come out on a number of occasions saying, yes, there was definitely foreign interference in the 2016 election. They've gone further to say that the Russians really wanted Trump to win. So those facts are probably not in dispute as far as the intelligence agencies go. Of course, on the Republican side, from the get-go, from the moment Donald Trump got elected, um, it's been running a particular line that this is a witch hunt, um, that this is a you know a Democratic fever dream. And more than that, this is a conspiracy theory pumped out by the Democrats to cover their own collusion and, and malfeasance in the 2016 election.
5: And this goes right down to Donald Trump ordering an investigation into why Mueller actually carried out the investigation.
1: That's right, and into supposed Democrats spying and FBI spying on his campaign that was illegal. Now, none of that has any basis, in fact. What the FBI were doing in his campaign uh, was not spying on Donald Trump per se, but they were investigating links between the ca- campaign figures and Russian intelligence figures. So... That, that link was, was there, and uh, really from 2016 uh, onwards, intelligence agencies were going, well, what's this all about?
5: Well, going right back to the end of the Second World War, Americans, by and large, have been deeply suspicious of the Soviet Union and subsequently of Russia, and particularly Putin's Russia. Uh, what do you think the average American makes of this? It sounds highly confusing from afar.
1: So it used to be that there was a, a very bipartisan attitude towards Russia with only shades of difference between Republicans and Democrats um, and broadly in you know u s public opinion in regard to Russia was relatively negative. Of course it it had its high points after the Cold War, and there was that peace dividend effect. Um, but generally, before Trump, there was a kind of consensus that you know that Russia was a strategic competitor, that Putin wasn't really interested in in things like a reset with russia, and 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 that's where the kind of relationship was. The Obama administration had sanctioned a whole bunch of Putin's associates, for example. So yes, uh, I think the broad public perception, that you know, Russia was not the US's friend, that's changed now for large sections of the US population. Um, and that's changed because the Republican Party decided that that was no longer you know, an issue.
5: Do you think it is still an issue?
1: Russia's foreign interference in, in US elections remains a massive issue. The intelligence agencies also said, and it was reported in this report, that Russia is actively involved in the the 2020 campaign.
5: Now, instruments of the American political structure, such as Senate committees, congressional committees generally, have often in the past operated with a sense of bipartisanship and professionalism. Do you think that over the last four years this has fallen apart?
1: I think it fell apart a little bit more in the lower house, uh, in the House of Congress, that very investigative report. Um, where there was active obstruction by Republicans. A lot of Republicans just weren't there for any of the the hearings. I think the Senate report um, has managed to avoid some of those. And what's remarkable about this report is that it is bipartisan, like both parties ticked off on this. Now, publicly they reached different conclusions. For Republicans, the report means that definitive proof that there was no collusion. For Democrats, it means look, there's some serious issues here um, that bear further, even further investigation. So just to say what the, the, the nux of the report is really about um, essentially the Wikileaks episode. Do you remember that in the 2016 campaign? Yes. Yeah. So this is when Russians hacked the DNC um, and got a whole bunch of Democrat emails, including from mm-hmm. uh, people like John Podesta, and Wikileaks put them up at a very opportune moment for the Trump campaign. So it was, it was basically around a big scandal in the Trump campaign.
5: Oh, it was at the time Hillary Clinton <laughs> was accused of um, using an insecure email system.
1: So everything sort of happened together, but according to testimony that came out in, in the Senate report, Roger Stone, who is a Trump operative that ended up going to jail, worked with Wikileaks who worked with a GRU operative to hack DNC campaign emails and then Wikileaks coordinated with Roger Stone to make sure those, those all that stuff was leaked to balance out the news cycle the day after the Hollywood tapes came out. So do right. you remember the Hollywood tapes? Ah, uh, yes. Where yeah. Trump was caught on yeah. camera boasting about...
5: Having molested women.
1: Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. That's the nux of this this particular report: the clear collaboration between the Trump campaign, WikiLeaks, and the GRU.
5: And the GRU, for our listeners, is Russian military intelligence. That's
1: right.
5: Yeah. About as sinister as it gets.
1: Well, well, yes, and um, and very entrepreneurial when it comes to hacking uh, elections.
5: Watching the United States from afar, we've got the world's most powerful democracy. It's a nation that that has shown dramatic leadership, very, very strong leadership uh, from right through the past century when the world's been in crisis. And it itself now seems to be in crisis to the point where there's serious speculation that if Donald Trump loses the election, he'll refuse to stand down to the point where we've got former military officers actually writing to the current commander in chief suggesting that the military needs a plan to remove the president from office. Now, this is something that would have been completely unthinkable a few years ago, that we should be looking at basically a military coup in the United States or people even talking seriously about it. Where do you think things are going
1: so some Trump supporters would say, you know, what Trump's saying is just to trigger the libs, just to own the libs, just to make Liberals froth at the mouth and have these sorts of conversations. And it's just another distracting element in the news flow. But Trump has has repeated on a number of occasions his desire to kind of wait and see whether he will leave office or not. When um, journalists asked uh, Christian McKenney, um, his press secretary, over the last couple of days, you know, is Trump serious? She just said, "Yeah, pretty much, yes, he is." So there's a lot of confusion around this issue. So that's why I guess some some military officers are like best to be prepared, you know, just in case.
5: One would think that the primary organisation to prevent something as catastrophic as that happening would be the Republican Party.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, traditionally, parties have acted as, as vehicles, as gatekeepers um, to prevent the most extreme elements uh, of their belief systems entering the bloodstream of national politics. That seems to have broken down over the last four years.
5: Anastasia will watch the space.
1: Thanks, Brendan. Finally, Tom Uren
0: and John Coyne continue the conversation on policing in the context of Australia's Cybersecurity Strategy 2020.
6: Okay, good day, John. So, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the rights and wrongs or the ethics of offensive cyber when it comes to law enforcement, and the government had uh, has since then released its twenty twenty cybersecurity strategy, and it had a, a chunk of money for defence, and also a chunk of money for the AFP, uh, like some ninety million uh, to build technical capabilities, establish target development teams. And it's about having a law enforcement push against cybercrime. So we thought it'd be good to have a chat about that. One of the things they said was that they would have new laws to uh, allow appropriate legislative powers to disrupt, deter, defeat the criminal exploitation of anonymizing technology and the dark web. And that's pretty much all it said about new laws. But there were a couple of newspaper reports about it. So... First of all, what do you think? Do you think it was a good announcement? Do you like that? Um, my my sort of uh, summary of our previous discussion is that we both agree there's benefits, but there's also difficulties and costs, and sometimes those aren't captured in, in government announcements.
2: Good morning, Tom, and i got to say to you, I think that um, overall, there can be no doubt that the strategy in the announcement was a great first step. And importantly, uh, it builds public confidence back in the government's doing something about this very broad and often misunderstood subject of of cyber and cyber threats so from that perspective it's a good step forward so um, now I caveat it the other way you know and as you know as a you know i working working a think tank we you know it's good to identify the good things but really you know we, we earn our bread and butter by identifying the problems you know so yes it builds public confidence but I think the devil's in the details on this so uh the legislation they're talking about i think is good um as you and i know that there's a big problems with it in terms of the actual technology and and the application of jurisdictions so you know it, it's fine to say that say that we're going to you know about anonymizing software and put legislation to prevent it or control it i mean it's core to the business model of a number of different um companies around the world so you know that's a reality secondly is is that that feeling and you would have seen that there was a piece in just shortly afterwards or the day after um, the release of that strategy there was a piece on the front fa- page of the australian where uh, the journalists were saying you know we're going to have these 100 cyber police officers across the world kicking in doors and arresting people um yeah, I thought that was extremely bizarre. <laughs> uh, look, I, you know, and I, I was very careful. I want to say this. I don't think the AFP Commission, because it wasn't directly quoted that way, he was saying that he'd have this cyber workforce offshore. They are interpreting it as doing that. But look, for the general public, you know, police can't just turn up in Nigeria or, or name any other cyber hotspot and start arresting people. It's and not so like that's Hollywood. A big challenge, no. Um, and getting cooperation, you know, you've got to remember, you know, in some of these jurisdictions, Eastern European ones, South and Central America, uh, Africa, you know, the law enforcement agencies there face a, a, a huge demand on their services, um, and and their capabilities and budgets fall far short of being able to respond to that demand. So when they're going to answer to an international um, request for assistance they can look at proportionality and issues. So I think that's another really big problem here is that um, if you've got a, a massive murder rate, in, say in Mexico, um, are you really going to be able to attribute investigative capability to assist the AFP and the Australian government to identify, locate and um, extradite? An offender who has you know who will likely only get twelve months in an Australian prison, even if he is found guilty when you're trying to keep communities safe. So I guess one thing that
6: occurred to me there is that many of these cyber crimes can be automated or they're they're conducted at scale. so you know for any one crime, you might only get a small amount of time, wouldn't wouldn't we kind of roll up the the crimes and say, you know this person has committed that relatively small fraud you know, hundreds or thousands of times and therefore get a longer jail sentence?
2: Look, under some circumstances, but not. my point is not necessarily. And again, you know, um, in terms of getting the sort of cooperation to bring that person to justice, you know, you're talking about having to uh, negotiate detailed mutual, mutual legal assistance agreements between each country. Then you're going to have to request a specific support on that, at that investigation. And there's got to be an offence in both countries. So in terms of for mutual legal assistance, now, it's very easy. So, you know, if, if someone murders someone in Australia and they flee to another country, every jurisdiction has a murder charge. So it's very easy to match that up. Um, in this cyberspace, much, much more difficult. Um, then mm. you have to collect in an evidentiary form that can be, be given in court. And in the case of Australia and many other jurisdictions, um, you've got to be able to prove that that offence beyond reasonable doubt. Um, we're talking some fairly significant challenges for what is considered, and traditionally law enforcement has focused on those sorts of crimes. It's given higher priority to those crimes globally that um, that involve violence against in the community. So, you know, this is an often non-violent crime. It's very hard to... It's not a victimless crime, but it's very hard to identify a victim. So I, my point is in that proportionality piece, I just don't see... Even when you're talking about sort of a key leader, locking that person down um, and being able to prove that that person through, as you know, the very opaque nature of cyber is pretty tough.
6: Yeah. So what was also really interesting to me is, is that that kind of sentence I read out earlier about appropriate legislative powers. And that's the only thing in the strategy that talks about doing something new for law enforcement, but there were a couple of newspaper pieces. Uh, so Michelle Grattan in the conversation said that that would actually be permitting access to computers used in serious criminal activity. And then that information, so uh, you know that there's crime occurring, you know that there's a computer involved, therefore AFP would have, I guess, the authority to to presumably hack into that computer Um, And then that information you got from that computer would then be required, well, you would use that to get more targeted warrants for interception and computer access. So I thought it was interesting and a bit, maybe wrong is the wrong word, but um, I think that's the sort of information that should have been in the strategy rather than briefed to reporters, um, because I think that's entirely justifiable and we should be transparent about that, that that actually makes sense as an approach. If you've got a computer, you don't know who who to get the warrant against in the first instance. Does that work
2: for you? Look, it does. The challenge here is is about jurisdictions again. And, you know, had it been in that strategy, I wonder how a number of our partners, and in fact, we might put it the other way. I mean, would we be happy without warrant and without um, action under a mutual legal assistance treaty, would we be happy with, uh, say, an American investigator from the FBI accessing a computer and hacking a computer that's in an Australian jurisdiction where it hasn't been proven beyond a reasonable doubt an offence? You know, that's, I guess, is the way I'm looking at it. And I think that... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm not necessarily against it. What I'm saying, though, is is that there's a lot of details that need to be yeah, worked yeah. out, and I'm not sure. And again, I'm not sure where Michelle Bratton got her whether her piece, the information for it, whether it was briefed yeah. directly from government. Um, yes, it sounds good, but the devil's in the detail and yeah, how yeah, it applied. Yeah. And, and a number of jurisdictions would be particularly unhappy if we started to do
6: that. Yeah. So the there was also a journalist in the Sydney Morning Herald who reported basically the same thing. So I'm I'm assuming that is some background brief from government, but, but I don't know. And the way I'm thinking is that there's public indictments from I think mostly the FBI where they talk about having a computer where they don't know where it is in the first instance. So they need to conduct some sort of investigation to first determine where it is. And I think that it makes sense that, police be able to do that because once you know where it is then the jurisdictional elements come into play that to me sort of makes sense but it also I think makes sense in a way that we should be transparent about it you know we're only doing it
2: to figure out where it is correct Full stop yep and look I mean um, I'll go back to your point before about pursuing those Mr Big criminals I and mean, you might remember this uh, this is this case of phantom secure and the blackberries where yeah. um Canadian-based company was modifying. I mean, the technology's old now, but, you know, it had modified and created software that allowed Blackberries to be modified to be essentially unbreakable in terms of encryption and secure communication Um, very uh, deliberately and the allegations are very deliberately uh, targeted that product towards criminals um, yeah, and yeah. other people of that same like now, the owner of that company was eventually pursued, and it's I think it's still before court or in an appeals anyway. But my point is, is that there are those sorts of those sorts of stories. Um, and, you know, then you can mix that up in the opposite way. You know, you remember there was that case in the FBI where the FBI wanted, uh, I think it was Apple, to undo, uh, open up a phone in relation yep. to an investigation they were doing, and there was a long, lengthy court case around that. So, I mean, there's two separate sort of issues there. You know, one is about pro- just providing encryption. The other one is providing encryption directly targeted at, at providing assistance to criminals and those who would undertake illegal or unethical behaviour. So, you know, there's a lot of detail in this space. And so, you know, like I keep on coming back to this is that I think that it's really valuable now that we have a strategy. I think it's really valuable that we have um, the fourth estate talking about it, um, not the media. And I think, uh, you know, ICPIC um, and more broadly ASPE and other think tanks and academia sitting there pulling apart and looking at these sort of separate issues. It's always, and I always say this as being a think tanker, you know, we're very fortunate. Um, you and I and others at Aspig because in many ways, we're all care and no responsibility in terms of these <laughs> sorts of topics. Uh, and I, I acknowledge, I think it's the policymakers, um, legislators, police officers out there actually doing investigations in with, and faced well, with um, the tricky thing of navigating all of this complexity. So um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that and say that, you know, here, Let's see some more details around jurisdictions and the reality of law enforcement globally to shape expectations of the public. Let's see more about this issue of proportionality offshore. Um, So, you know, surely we're not going to pursue cyber criminals with the same vigor that we pursue murderers and terrorists and others who who are guilty of much more serious offences. So, you know, let's see some more detail on it and I think continuing that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So I
6: think we both agree I think that we need more flesh on the bones and that should be public. And I think there's a way that you can talk a lot about what you would do in a way that reassures people, allows them to understand the guardrails, why it's proportionate and the oversight i'm just a bit afraid that the, the current perception in government is that the safest way to approach these things is to say is to use a small target approach and say as little as possible but thanks for talking today john no worries at all i really enjoyed it my-
0: that's all we have time for this week on policy guns and money thanks for listening we'll be back with another episode next week